Well, it's good to be back together this morning. So I missed everybody last week. I don't know if you missed me or not, but but I, I missed you. And I was thinking, too, that because um, our family was gone the last Sunday in December, so since Christmas Day, basically, I've preached once. <laughs> so I have to get back into the groove this morning, but, but it, is, it is good to be back together. We're going to start a new sermon series today. Uh, for the next 10 weeks, we'll be spending our time in the letter of First John. So that is a, it's a book of the Bible. It's only five chapters long. It's not, it's not real long, but it, it's, it's overflowing, I think, with deep theological statements about the nature of God, and then also how we as believers ought to be impacted by God's work within us. And so, so I'm really looking forward to spending these next 10 weeks in that letter. And, and I want to start today like, like I would typically do when I begin a series on a new book of the Bible. I'm going to spend a little time going over some background information that I think will, uh, will be helpful for us as we progress through the book over these coming weeks. And then, and then we'll, uh, I'll conclude this morning by, by looking at the introduction to the book, the first four verses that, uh, that we have there. So, so with that being said, I, I think it's, it's good to start by, by asking those those famous interrogatory questions that I think I learned from Mrs. Cushing in fourth grade, but, you know, who wrote the letter, to whom was it written, why was it written, when was it written, all of those kinds of questions. So, so as for who wrote the letter, it might seem obvious based on the title, right? It's called First John, and so that'd be a valid guess that this letter was written by a fella named John. Now, to be fair, we can't be 100% certain based on the text itself. If you look in the New Testament, the letters that are written by Paul, by Peter, by Jude, they contain a typical greeting for that time period, a letter in that time, where the writer begins by naming himself. First John does not begin that way, and neither does second or third John for that matter. So, so we can't just look at that and say, well, it has to have been John who wrote the letter. Doesn't, the letter itself does not specify that. Um, there, there's historical church tradition that, that connects this letter and 2nd and 3rd John to the Apostle John. And, and so I think, we, I think we do well to recognize that, that throughout the history of the church, that's, that's been where the, the church has landed. So we ought to give that the appropriate weight in the discussion. But I think the strongest indication that, that this letter was indeed written by John is the incredible number of similarities that it contains with the gospel of John. So the structure, the style, the content of 1 John is just so similar to the gospel of John. And it was kind of interesting. Is, is my routine is, a, is I'm preparing to preach through a book in the Bible um, it usually goes something like this. I'll, uh, the first thing that I'll do is I'll read through the entire book uh, in, in one sitting, if possible. And as I'm reading, I try to outline the book, come up with my own outline. And, and uh, then once I do that, I'll, I'll generally compare it with some other Bible commentators and the outlines that they've written. But I like to write my own outline first to just truly 
try and hear from the Holy Spirit before I hear from other voices in there as well. So, First John only being five chapters long, I, I just I, I planned to do what I normally do. The problem was I read through the book and I was really struggling to come up with a coherent outline of First John. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try it again. Maybe I, maybe I'm just missing something. And I actually read some introductions to some commentaries just to see if that might spark something. But even after the second time through, I just just did not feel confident in, in, in an outline. And, you know, the author, the author of the letter would he'd talk about one thing and then move on to something else and then come back to that thing and then go to something else. And, I, and so, so I was just kind of pondering, seeking God's leading. And I believe the Holy Spirit kind of finally broke through and gave me the direction I needed. And, and it was just a simple thought. And this is what it was. First John is not a letter written by Paul. And you might be like, well, duh, Aaron, of course it's not. <laughs> you know, how much money did you spend on your education, right? Like, <laughs> but it might seem like it's pretty obvious, but, but hear me out. I knew all along that Paul didn't write First John. Like, I knew that, but I was studying it as if it was written by Paul. In Paul's letters, he usually make, he makes arguments that flow from one point to the next, and things are building on each other and progressing in a logical, ordered way. It's, it, you know, it's the kind of writing that a left-brained, dominant person like me really likes, really connects with. But, but the book of 1 John, and as well as the Gospel of John, it's not written in that fashion. The focus is much more upon themes within the book. So, so if you take the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, now, they contain themes that, that pervade throughout the book, but, but they're largely written in chronological order. When you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's what you get. When it comes to the Gospel of John, there's some chronology to it, but that's not really what drives the narrative of John's Gospel. And so that's why, like, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, something that happens in the final days of his life before his crucifixion. They have that toward the end. But John puts that story in chapter 2 of his gospel, toward the very beginning. And he does it to make a thematic point. And so, so, so once I stopped analyzing First John, according to how Paul would have written it, and started looking at, okay, what do I know about how John writes? It, it just made so much more sense. It came together. So there's some main themes which John addresses multiple times in the letter. And two of those main themes are highlighted by direct statements that John makes. John says that uh, God is light and God is love. He says that a couple times, and that's why I've entitled this series, God is Light and Love. Those are two overarching themes that we're going to see as we go through this. And kind of as a quick side note, in the midst of all of that, I, it just hit me again. Isn't it incredible how the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet because various books are composed by different human writers, the character of the books reflects the one writing the words, all without taking away from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that credible? That, that Paul can write how he writes and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And John can write how he writes and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And I thought, you know, it's even kind of like our lives. 
in a way. It's, it's just a beautiful picture of how we, can, we all can follow the leading of the same Holy Spirit and yet live our lives according to the way in which God has created us with our own gifts and talents and abilities and things like that. I just thought, man, it's such a good picture of that. So, now, now that's a long explanation to the question, who wrote the letter, all right? You could have said, well, it just says John, Aaron, just go with that. But I, I, in summary, I, I think First John is written by the same individual who wrote John's gospel. And, and the text of John's gospel in church tradition as well leads us to believe that is the Apostle John. So there's ample evidence to say yes. Even though John's name is not right at the beginning of this letter, it is the Apostle John who wrote 1 John. So if it was written by the Apostle John, then when did he write it? To whom did he write it? Now the Gospel of John, as, as well as the book of Revelation, which is attributed to John, those are, those are some of the last, some of the later written books in the New Testament. Many people believe 85 to 95 AD is when those books were written. So we're talking about uh, 50 to 60 years after Jesus walked the earth. Uh, the common belief is 1 John was written probably about that time frame as well. Probably not before the Gospel of John, but, but in that same time period. As far as the recipients of the letter, again, we don't have that normal introduction like in Paul's letters that tell us exactly who he's writing to. Um, it's interesting, 2nd and 3rd John both let us know who the recipients are, but 1st John does not. It seems likely that 1st that John was a circular letter meant to be, meant to be passed around to multiple churches. Um, because of the, the churches named in the book of Revelation, because of John's connection with the city of Ephesus, a good guess is that this letter was intended for churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, uh, Minor around Ephesus, who were all dealing with a similar struggle. And so John wrote them a letter to be passed around between them. And, and so, so that brings us to the why the why of 1 John. Why write this letter? And what it seems is there was a group from within the church who had began to teach false things about God. And it seems that, that uh, they had, when the letter was written, they had since left the church and they were traveling around to other churches in the area uh, spreading their false teaching. And so those who remained in the churches were those who rejected their false teaching, didn't go with these teachers when they left, but, but maybe had their faith shaken a little bit by what had taken place, about some of the things that had been proclaimed by these false teachers. And so John's letter, it does to a small degree point out the error of those false teachers, but it mostly affirms to those remaining people in the church why they are indeed still holding to the truth about Jesus. John hopes that, that by the end of his letter that their faith will be strengthened, that they will have greater confidence and assurance regarding what they believe about Christ, regarding their identity in Christ. And so when you think about that, you know, we live 2,000 years later, but our context is also one in which False teachings about God are prevalent. They're easy to find in the world, aren't they? 
Now, I mean, false teachings have always existed. But I wonder if just due to the technological advancements in our time, if I think they're more accessible than they've ever been and maybe more convincing than they've ever been. And so, you know, we can, we can hear people speak or, or read things that, that might cause us to question what we've previously known to be true. And so like the churches to whom John wrote, I think we too benefit from being reminded of the truth of who God is, the truth of what he is doing within us. We too can benefit from being, from our confidence in God being strengthened, being affirmed. So, so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will do that for us and in us these coming weeks as we study this letter that John wrote. So that's all the introductory stuff. As I said earlier, the, the two main themes that we're going to focus on in the weeks ahead are the themes of God is light and God is love. But before we get to those, we're going to look at the first four verses, the introduction to this letter. And consequently enough, the theme of those first four verses is the very thing we've been celebrating in the recent Christmas season. It is the incarnation of Jesus. God the Son becoming human. So, so follow along with me as, as I read these opening, opening four verses. Um, if you want to find it in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1021. So this is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John writes and says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now there's a lot packed into those first four verses. And John begins this letter kind of like his gospel, in the beginning. But it's not, he's not referencing the beginning of his writing, he's referencing the beginning of all things. Right, what we read earlier in the gospel of John chapter 1, it famously says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. That speaks to the eternality of the word who John goes on to clearly identify as the Son of God. The Son of God is eternal. And likewise, he speaks here about that which was from the beginning. From the beginning. So, so even though our, our time-bound minds struggle to comprehend that concept, God is outside of time. God is eternal in nature. He precedes the beginning of creation. So everything that has a beginning begins with God. And so that being said, John moves from speaking of the eternal to speaking of the historical, 
He says, that which was from the beginning, but then he moves into the historical. He talks about the object of his description. Again, it's from the beginning, but it's been heard. It's been seen. It's been looked upon. It's been touched. <clears throat> the eternal God became human. That, that's, that's the incarnation. Became flesh, as John said in his gospel. Now, because of the way John introduces his letter, it seems likely that the false teachers, which I mentioned earlier, were, were teaching that God had not become human, that that was part of what they were teaching, that the incarnation was not a real thing. Now, it was a common belief at that time that it was, it was somehow beneath God to, to join himself to humanity in that way. And in fact, uh, some saw the purpose of humans of humanity as to transcend the physical world. That was a popular way of thinking at that time. So in that vein of thinking, why would God move backward by becoming human? I mean, he's already transcended, so why come into physical creation? So it, there, there was a way of thinking at that time that just said, no, no, God would never do that. Well, John says, no, God did do that. The eternal one who was from the beginning was heard, he was seen, he was looked upon, he was touched. And it wasn't just by John. What, is, what does John keep saying there? He doesn't say, which I have seen, which I've looked upon. He says, we. Because he keeps saying we, John is connecting himself, connecting his experience with the rest of the apostles, the rest of the followers of Jesus, whose physical senses would affirm the exact same thing. Yes, we all looked upon Jesus. We all touched him. I mean, verse 2 states uh, twice that, that the Son of God was made manifest. He was evident to those who have seen him. Now, again, we, this, is, this is what we celebrate during the Christmas season, right? We've no doubt heard this truth multiple times. It is rightly a central tenet of our faith, which cannot be compromised. That's why John spoke out against these false teachers. But how often do we ponder the incredible reality of the incarnation like, like we should, right? The awesome, eternal God of the universe revealed himself to us in such a way that we could comprehend him. He made himself manifest to us. That, that's incredible to think about. The eternal God revealed himself through human language. The eternal God revealed himself through the emotions that he showed, through his reactions to different situations, through his interactions with other people, right, especially the outcast. He revealed himself through experiencing life as a human. I mean, those things are all tied together in that God revealed himself by becoming one of us. He made his dwelling among us, as John wrote in his gospel. He perfectly, permanently, and, and intimately united himself to humanity in the person of Jesus. This is... This is incredible. So the eternal son of God being born as a baby boy on the first Christmas, 
enabled a level of fellowship between humanity and divinity that was otherwise impossible. And, and we're going to hang on to that word fellowship because we'll, we'll get back to it in, in just a little bit. But the word became flesh, dwelled among us. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Melanie said to uh, Megan and, and me back during the Christmas season, she said, I've asked, I've asked lots of people this question. Right? I've asked lots of people, but no one can answer it. God doesn't have a birthday. And Jesus is God. So how can Jesus have a birthday? And you, you know, you picture her saying it with all the all the spunk and sass and cuteness that Melanie has, right? And it's just like, yep, that, that's a good question. I think what John would say is that God, who was from the beginning, yeah, who doesn't have a birthday, became flesh, took on a birthday, right, so that he could be seen and touched and heard. And I, you know, I can't explain the inner workings of that, but it is the truth of which John wants the believers to be confident, those he wrote to in his letter, but, but us 2,000 years later as well. It is a truth that we can be confident of, even if we can't explain exactly how that works, that yes, God who was from the beginning has been heard and seen and touched. He did become fully human. Now, now I've maybe put the cart before the horse just a little bit, but look at the, look at the last phrase of verse 1. It says, concerning the word of life. So, so with that statement, John finally gets to the object of those opening phrases. From the beginning, heard, seen, looked upon, touched. It's the word of life. And just like in, in the first verse of his gospel, John also uses in the first verse of his letter this word logos. Right? It's translated word. So if, if you were to look in your Bible at John 1.1, 1, 1, you would see that the word logos is capitalized. The word word is capitalized. And it doesn't matter what translation you look in, it, 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 they're all capital W's. The word, in the beginning was the word, capital W. And it's not because John wrote it that way. There were not capital letters in ancient Greek writing. The reason it's capitalized in every translation is because it's universally understood that John is directly referencing the Son of God. When he says, in the beginning was the word, he is speaking of the Son of God directly. In our letter, in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, Scholars, translators don't have the same agreement. So in the ESV, which I'm reading from, you see that word is not capitalized. If you've got the NIV open in front of you right now, you'll see that it is capitalized. If you've got the Christian Standard Bible, it's not capitalized. If you've got the New Living Translation, it is capitalized. So what gives? Why, why, the, why the disagreement there? There's two understandings, and these two aren't mutually exclusive. It's not, they, they go together, but they are two different understandings. So, so they'll go hand in hand, but whichever one you hold to will dictate whether or not word is capitalized. So, so I'll give you the 60-second summary. John could be using word here in his letter, just like in the gospel. And so in that case, 
because it's a direct reference to the Son of God, it would be capitalized. So it is the word of life because the word, the logos, is the source of all life. So that's what, some would say, that's what John is saying here, the word of life. It's speaking directly of the Son of God, the source of life. John could also be using the word word to describe the gospel message. It's called the word of life because it is the message about Jesus, which leads to life in Jesus. And so in that case, John, they would say John is referencing the message. And because he's referencing the message about Jesus, not Jesus himself, you wouldn't capitalize the word, word. Like I said, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, but, but they are two different understandings to what John is saying. I would say I think, I think the NIV has it right. I think it's supposed to be capitalized here. I think John is making a direct reference to the Son of God himself. And, and, and here's why this matters. If the word of life and, and eternal life, as John uses them here, if he's describing things associated with Jesus, then we would understand that receiving the word of life leads us to eternal life. We have eternal life through the word of life. And that's entirely true. The gospel message of Jesus does lead to life in Jesus that never ends. That is absolutely true. But if John uses word of life and eternal life in verse 2 to describe Jesus himself, then our understanding of eternal life grows bigger. Eternal life becomes not just something that's out there in the future. It's not just a future reward that we will get after we die here. But it, but it is instead a partnership with God in truly living now and forever. Eternal life becomes not just something down the road, but now as well. And I think this is right in line with what John says in his purpose for what he's writing. Uh, look again at verse 3. John wants the recipients to have fellowship with him as he has fellowship with God. John doesn't say, okay, I'm, I'm proclaiming these words so that you might have salvation and have eternal life. He's saying, I write these words so that you may have fellowship. If, if our only understanding of the gospel message of Jesus is that, that he died on the cross so that we can be forgiven of sin and live forever in the perfection of heaven, then what we are doing is we are focusing on a singular aspect of the gospel. Now, now it's a true aspect of the gospel. Hear me. It is absolutely true. But it is only a singular aspect of it. That's only part of what takes place. Understanding the work of Jesus as bringing us into fellowship with him and fellowship with one another it forces us to consider the wider implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. So yes, we are forgiven of sins in Jesus. That's why we can be reconciled to God. But we are also adopted into his family as sons and daughters. We also reign with him and, and so share in his victory. 
We are also united together as fellow believers, sharing fellowship together in Christ. The work of Jesus upon the cross accomplishes all of those things, not just forgiveness of sins. So John doesn't say he wants the recipients of his letter to go to heaven someday like he will. He wants them to have fellowship with God and with others now like he does. And I think that's also what what will make John's joy complete as he writes in verse 4. He longs for the churches to live in deep fellowship with God and with one another. So as we think about communion this morning, um, and elders, you can go ahead and come forward. If we're ever at the place where we view assembling and fellowshipping with the church body as, as a hassle or, or not very important or just, you know, not necessary, good, but not necessary. If we ever view fellowship, gathering together as that, then we are not correctly understanding the broader implications of Jesus' incarnation. Jesus became human, died on a cross to remove our sin so that we can be united together with him in fellowship and by extension with one another as well. Uh, our, our participation in communion this morning, when you think about what it is, it's such a good picture of that. Even the very term communion speaks of relationship and intimacy and unity. So our, our eating the bread, our drinking the juice, taking the physical elements into our physical body where they literally become part of us it symbolizes the fellowship that we have with God through Jesus. And, and li- I mean, listen to Jesus' words as he prayed in the upper room. On the very night in which he instituted this communion meal, listen to what, listen to what Jesus says as he's praying. Uh, John 17, starting in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, this is a reminder to us that that through Jesus, God himself is in us. I mean, Jesus says that, I in them. But, But the picture extends farther. Jesus also prayed that we would all be one, that we would be in God. He prayed that we may be perfectly one. You know, there's a reason that communion is not an individual exercise. I would say there's a theological reason you cannot go into your house by yourself, open the fridge, pour some grape juice, tear off a hunk of bread, and have communion. Right? It has always been intended to be observed collectively. 
It's because Jesus' broken body and spilled blood isn't only about uniting us to him. That's definitely part of it. But it's also about uniting us with one another in him. You you think about during COVID, uh, pastors, church leaders wrestled big time with whether or not they should lead people to participate in communion virtually. Yeah, that was, maybe that wasn't a hot topic of discussion for you, but, but for us pastors, that was one of those things that came up. Some felt, well, it's not ideal, but, but since the church is gathered virtually, yeah, we can still have communion together. And others would say, no, no, virtual gathering is not real gathering, and so we shouldn't be having communion in that format. In the midst of that conversation, the point was reaffirmed, whatever side you came down on, the point was reaffirmed that communion is meant to be taken collectively. We come together physically to join in eating and drinking the same meal as a display of our being united together in Jesus. So we are united with God in Jesus, yes. We are also united with one another in Jesus as well. So the Son of God, who who was from the beginning, has physically been made manifest in order to bring us into eternal life, unending life lived in fellowship with God and with one another. So as we take communion now, eat the bread, drink the juice, let's, let's dwell on that together. It is our fellowship with Jesus but it's also our fellowship with one another. So let's do that.